0: Hello, everyone. It's Eves, checking in here to let you know that you're going to be hearing two different events in history in this episode, one from me and one from Tracy V. Wilson. They're both good, if I do say so myself. On with the show.
1: Welcome to the Stay in History class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's September 15th. The crash at Crush took place on this day in 1896. And if that name doesn't sound familiar, it's one of the many times that people wrecked some trains together for fun. People like to smash things and people like to watch things being smashed. And then the late 1800s and early 1900s, this included intentionally staging train wrecks for people to watch. William George Crush was a passenger agent for the state of Texas at the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad Company, also known as the Katy. It was kind of a shortened version of those initials, MKT. He had a great idea to sell more tickets on this railroad. The railroad was replacing all of its 35-ton locomotives with 60-ton models, so he thought they might, on purpose, wreck two of the old ones together at a specially constructed stretch of track, and, of course, they could also sell tickets to get to that stretch of track on the Katy for $2 piece. Thirty-three trains were pulled into the whole effort. He was a little concerned about whether this would be safe. In particular, he worried about whether the boilers of these two locomotives might explode on impact, so he asked around among the engineers. All but one of them said that probably wouldn't happen, so he went ahead with his plan. They laid down special track from the Waco-Dallas line, and they basically made a pop-up town that they named Crush. It was 15 miles north of Waco and about three miles south of the town of West. It had a restaurant and lemonade stands and a grandstand and a huge carnival with all the expected carnival attractions. They drilled wells, and they borrowed a tent from P.T. Barnum, They built a temporary jail just in case the crowd got rowdy and they hired 200 constables to patrol on the day. They also prepared for a media onslaught with two telegraph offices and a stand for reporters. This whole site was surrounded by hills that gave a lot of natural vantage points to watch the wreck. And there was a stretch of railroad track that they were able to put among these hills that would let both of the engines go slightly downhill until they met at the middle. They chose locomotives 999 and 1001. One of them was painted green with red trim and the other red with green. Then they advertised what they were going to do all through the summer of 1896. Passengers started arriving on September 15th at about 10 in the morning. There were about 10,000 spectators. They were supposed to start the event at four, but at four, there were still trains that were arriving full of people, and some of these trains were so crowded that passengers were hanging onto the top of them instead of riding inside. When they finally started at five o'clock, there were 40,000 people watching, which was about twice as many as they had thought were going to come. The two trains came slowly together, and they touched their cowcatchers, sort of like they were boxers. William Crush raised his hat from on horseback after the trains had reversed apart again. He whipped down his hat as a signal for the event to begin. Their drivers anchored their whistles down and they got the engines going before jumping clear. And when the two locomotives hit each other, each going about 50 miles an hour, they folded together like accordions and the boxcars they were towing shattered into splinters. Unfortunately... That one engineer that Crush had talked to who suggested that the boilers might explode was the one who was correct. Both of the boilers did explode, and scalding water and flying debris flew into the crowd, causing so many injuries, some of them very serious. And there were also, tragically, deaths. One man was hit with a length of brake chain and was killed instantly. There was a young girl who was hit with debris and died on the way home. There was also a man who survived the wreck itself unharmed, but on the way home was run over by one of the trains and killed. Even in the face of all the injuries and the chaos, though, souvenir hunters rushed to the wreck from their vantage points to try to take away pieces of it. The Katy fired William Crush immediately, but then hired him back the next day. And then not long after all of this, composer and pianist Scott Joplin published his Great Crush Collision March. You can learn more about this and about the other train wrecks that people staged on purpose for fun in the September 15th, 2017 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Tari Harrison for all her audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a battle cry.
0: Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was September 15th, 1963. Members of the Ku Klux Klan planted bombs in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, killing four girls and injuring many other people. Birmingham was an important site of protest and organizing during the civil rights movement. Launched in 1963, the Birmingham Campaign was a movement of protest against segregation laws in the city. It was home to Bethel Baptist Church, which was the headquarters of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights and where activist Fred Shuttlesworth served as pastor for several years. And Birmingham was the site of the Children's Crusade in May of 1963 when students marched to protest segregation and were met with blasts from water hoses, attacks by police dogs, arrests, and beatings by police officers. The students involved in the Children's Crusade gathered at the 16th Street Baptist Church and marched downtown. The 16th Street Baptist Church specifically was a place where civil rights activists met and organized in Birmingham. People like Southern Christian Leadership Conference leader James Bevel and Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at the church. But on September 15, 1963, it was a site of terrorism. That day, the church held Sunday services as usual. But around 10.22 a.m., Carolyn Mall, who was acting as Sunday school secretary, picked up a phone call. The caller only said three minutes and hung up. Just after Carolyn hung up the phone, a bomb exploded in the church. Three of the girls that were killed, Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, and Carol Robertson, were 14 years old. Cynthia Wesley was 11 years old when she was killed in the church bombing. Sarah Collins, Addie Mae's sister, was blinded in one eye because of the blast. The bomb had been planted beneath steps on the east side of the church, and the girls who died were in the basement at the time of the explosion. More than 20 people were injured in the blast. There had been other bombings in Birmingham in 1963 in retaliation to desegregation measures being passed. The Gaston Motel, where Dr. King had been staying but left, was bombed. The house of A.D. King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s brother, was also bombed. NAACP attorney Arthur Shore's house was firebombed. Segregationist reactions to the success of the Civil Rights Movement were often violent. After the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, protesters came to the scene of the crime. Two Black boys, Virgil Ware and Johnny Robinson, were killed in the riots, and more were injured. Alabama Governor George Wallace sent National Guardsmen and 300 state troopers into Birmingham, and hundreds of police officers and sheriff's deputies also showed up to police the crowds. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at the funeral held for three of the girls. The FBI office in Birmingham launched an investigation into the bombing, In a memo to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, agents named white supremacist Thomas Blanton, Robert Chambliss, Bobby Frank Cherry, and Herman Cash as suspects. But by the time the investigation ended in 1968, there were no indictments. The FBI said that witnesses were reluctant to talk, that there was not enough physical evidence, and that info gathered from FBI surveillance was not admissible in court. The bombing, along with other tragic events that affected people's perception of the civil rights movement, like John F. Kennedy's assassination and the March on Washington, inspired support for and the passage of civil rights legislation in the following years. Alabama Attorney General Bill Baxley later reopened the case, and in 1977, Robert Chambliss was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Blanton and Cherry were sentenced to four life terms in 2001 and 2002, respectively. Cash died in 1994, before he was charged. FBI informant Gary Thomas Rowe Jr. was also suspected of being involved in the bombing, but he was cleared of involvement. It's been claimed that Hoover ordered FBI agents not to disclose evidence against the bombers to county prosecutors to prevent justice from being served. But the FBI said his concern was to prevent leaks and that he did not think a conviction could be won on circumstantial evidence. The FBI did acknowledge that it did not give secretly recorded tapes and other evidence to Alabama officials when it reopened its investigation. The 16th Street Baptist Church is now a National Historic Landmark. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. We'd love it if you left us a comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at TDIHCPodcast. Thank you for joining me today. See you same place, same time tomorrow.